Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. everybody, and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Marshall Poe, your host. Each week we pick a history book that we find particularly interesting, and we interview the author of that book. This week we're very happy to have Kristen Salello on the show, and we'll be discussing her new book, Making Marriage Work, A History of Marriage and Divorce in the 20th Century United States. It's really a fascinating book. Um, as you probably know, the divorce rate has been um, rising in the United States for some time, and uh, you probably want to know why. Well, Kristen explains uh, why very deftly, and she also discusses the uh, creation of a new therapeutic practice, one which um, some of you probably have even had contact with. That is the marriage counselor. Marriage counselors first appeared in the 1930s, and uh, their numbers have been growing ever since, along with the divorce rate. It, this is a very timely story, and it's uh, extremely well told by Kristen. And uh, I encourage you to listen to the interview. Here it is. Hi, Kristen. Hi, Marshall. How are you today? I'm fine, thank you. And you are in New York, is that correct? Yes, I am. I am in Queens. Queens. I always ask people where they are because I, I just find it kind of magical that we can just do this uh, across hundreds and hundreds of miles. I've, I haven't been to Queens recently. Um, are things prospering there? Well, you know, <laughs> we're we're all still waiting to see what happens. Uh, my commute just got a little harder because the the MTA decided to raise fares. I'm sorry to hear that. As of May, but otherwise things are good. Okay, good. I should tell our listeners that we're talking to Kristen Salello, and we'll be talking about her terrific new book, Making Marriage Work: A History of Marriage and Divorce in the 20th Century United States. Um, I've read the book. I thought it was terrific. I have a marriage that I'm uh, working on and that my children are trying to destroy. Um, yeah, uh, maybe you should write another book called How to Overcome Your Children's Effort to Destroy Your Marriage. Um, no, it's really not true. But anyway, we're very uh, pleased to have you on the show today. Um, I, I, I read the book, as I said, with, um, with intense interest, and my wife is reading it now, as I told Kristen earlier in the pre-interview. But let me begin by just asking you, Kristen, to tell us um, a few words about yourself. Certainly, yes. Um, I, I'm one of those rare folks. I grew up in Wilmington, Delaware, mm-hmm. uh, which is most people say I've never met anyone from Delaware. Well, before. Delaware, Delaware, that has the uh, the best state motto, isn't it? The tax-free state. Well, no, I, our <laughs> technical model is the yeah, but it is the home of tax-free shopping, which okay, is the size yeah, you no, see of the air. Although, though, we've had a recent bump in activity since Vice President Biden uh, right. came to office. Who's a Delawarean, That's so right. okay, well. now people say Biden. Uh, so I, I grew up in uh, I grew up in Wilmington, Delaware, the large family, mm-hmm. and um, I went to college uh, in North Carolina. Mm-hmm. In fact, mm-hmm. I went to Wake Forest University. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that was really the place where I fell in love with history, and particularly U.S. women's history. Mm-hmm. Um, I had actually gone, and I was a French major as well as a history major mm-hmm. in college. 
Uh, and I think many of my family and friends had hoped I would decide to become a French historian so that they could have fantastic vacations, you know, mm-hmm. in Paris or in the, you know, Provence or what have you. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I defied them. I took my first women's history class uh, the first semester of my sophomore year and, and fell in love and, and really was had no looking back in some ways. I went straight from my undergraduate, right straight through into graduate school. Mm-hmm which is not actually something that I recommend to my students. Mm-hmm. No, I did the same uh, thing. I don't either. Yeah, Yeah, just for, you know, find yourself a little bit more, figure yeah. out who you are perhaps, mm-hmm. although mm-hmm. I also can't complain because mm-hmm. I uh, I'm I love my job and, and I love having the opportunity to, to work on this project and work on this yeah, book. That's so. great. And so then you, you, um, you went into graduate school at, you said UNC, is that where you went? At the University of Virginia. Virginia, I'm sorry. Um, excuse me, UNC yeah. published the book. Yeah, University of yeah. Virginia. By the way, let me just, uh, this is a bit of a, a digression. Did you know a Professor Rupp in the history department at Wake Forest? She yes. did Russian history. She's an old friend of mine. Yes. No, I did, in yeah. fact. Yeah. I never, I, I, I was taking so many French classes and U.S. history classes, I never did yeah. But yeah, she she and I were in college together, and we yeah. Oh, that's still, fantastic. Yeah, I know it's kind of interesting, isn't it? Yeah. So then you go to Virginia, and who do you yeah. work with there? I worked with Cindy Aaron, mm-hmm. uh, who's the U.S. Women's Historian. Who uh, we're all very sad right now because she just announced her retirement. Oh. Uh, she's retiring this spring, mm-hmm. and we're planning all of her and all of her students across the country. We're planning a big shindig yeah, in Washington this in this summer to celebrate. That's so great. that'll that's be great. great. That's terrific. And how did you come? Uh, to work on this particular topic, marriage and divorce in the United States? This topic, I actually came to to graduate school with an interest in weddings. Mm -hmm. And that's what I thought I wanted to work on for my master's thesis. And I just couldn't quite get traction on the project. I Mm -hmm. just was having a hard time conceiving of what I wanted to do, what sort of sources I wanted to use. And I'll never forget, I was sitting in, in her office one day and Cindy looked at me and she said, you know, you're really interested in the beginning of marriages, but what if you look at the end of them instead? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, no, wise, a wise choice, I think. Yeah. Yes, yes, indeed. And, and so that launched me, and the more I thought about it and the more I did some reading, I thought, I actually think I'm, I am kind of interested in this, in, this whole, in this whole divorce topic, and I actually started off looking, my master's thesis was very much a sort of social and legal history, looking at court records, Mm-hmm. Uh, from a county in Virginia in the late 19th and early 20th century, mm-hmm. uh, and then I jumped into the 20th century. I was working on a on a seminar paper on uh, domestic violence in mm-hmm. the in sort of mid century, and the thing that struck me there was I kept reading all these articles from American Journal of Sociology and Social Forces, all these sorts of different places, and, and they kept saying it was written by a marriage counselor, mm-hmm. and I thought, huh, I've never read anything about how marriage counseling came to, to be a profession or came into sort of the public sphere in the United States. And I asked everyone, all the professors I could find, there must be someone who's done this work. Mm-hmm. And no one mm-hmm. yeah, well. And it was one of those, oh, oh, I just found something I can do that's yeah. original. Yeah. And so, and it, evol- and it evolved from there. There actually has since in the past six or seven years been some other important work that's been done mm-hmm. um, on the marriage counseling professions at the time, there really there really wasn't anything. I, I was starting from scratch in some ways. Well, that's a ter- that's a terrific find. I, you know, whenever you discover so I, whenever I've discovered something like that, and believe me, it hasn't been very often. I've always been uh, sort of gobsmacked or amazed that uh, nobody else had done this before. 
I just, I, I, I just I would spent, assume that they had. And they don't, yeah. I spent three years terrified that there was just some really important book out there yeah. that all my searching, all of my questions had missed. Yeah, yeah. You know? <laughs> well, I yeah, I was going to say we we did um but back to the um history of uh weddings again. Um we did interview Catherine Jellison about her book. Yes. Yeah, it's our day, America's love affair with the white wedding a few weeks ago and I thought that was absolutely fascinating. Do you, do you work do you know her or work with her in the Yeah, you guys I'm familiar talk. I'm familiar yeah. with her work very much so. Her yeah. and, and there's also a woman named Vicky Howard who who rel- has a relatively recent book uh-huh. on the wedding industry. And so I I think yeah. I was maybe onto something when I was yeah. saying in the late 90s no one's done weddings either, but yeah. but I'm glad to see that there's been being work being done on that because I think it's fascinating yeah. and I like I like to assign those books. Well, there's well, really you know I, a family. Yeah, I, I mean I worked in nonfiction journalism. Actually, that's kind of redundant, isn't it? I guess maybe it's not, <laughs> I was just in nonfiction journalism, but there is fiction journalism. I, right, I mean, there is. But I worked in the nonfiction part for a while, and I can tell you there's no hotter topic than um, uh, modern coupling and child raising. So mm-hmm. anybody thinking about uh, pursuing a career in um, in nonfiction, anything, including history, uh, modern coupling in America, um, editors love it. They just eat yeah. it up. Yeah. So, yeah. So I, I can't say that when I tell people my topic that I always get, oh, that's so timely. Oh, that's so. Yeah. And that's, that's a nice thing as a historian to hear because that's yeah. not always something. You yeah. Know. No, I never heard that. I stu- you know, my, my first work was on um, 16th and 17th century European travelers to Muscovy. <laughs> that one really didn't sell, but, yeah, but it was interesting enough. Anyway, so let's uh, launch directly into a, a, a discussion of, of the book. I mean, one of the things that you say, and I think maybe people know, maybe they don't know, I don't know, is in the 19th century, divorce in the United States was, was uh, quite uncommon. Why is that? A lot of it, and I will say it was quite uncommon, but at the same time it was more common than in almost any other country. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of that had to do with with the legal system. Um, well, divorce has always been technically legal, at least in parts of the United States. Even the Puritans were did have some provisions mm-hmm. uh, for divorce, largely because they felt that uh, having an unharmonious household was more detrimental to the community than allowing people to get divorced and mm-hmm. pursue a more harmonious relationship elsewhere. Uh, it was really something in, in the, in, particularly in the early part of the 19th century, you oftentimes in a lot of states had to get an act of uh, your state legislature to get a divorce. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you had, you know, you had to, so you had to find a sponsor for a bill to agree mm-hmm. to divorce you. And so obviously that was something that was really only open to people who were uh, very well connected politically and had the money to push this through. Mm-hmm. Um, now, there was a much higher desertion rate, of course, and that's mm-hmm. something that's always important to consider is just because there wasn't necessarily access to legal divorce, that didn't mean that people were not ending their unions mm-hmm. in some ways. Mm-hmm. Uh, what ended up happening and the reason that the divorce moved more into the courts and out of the legislatures is that the legislatures found that they were being inundated and they didn't want to spend all of their time talking about divorce cases, mm-hmm. and so there was a movement to, to put those divorce cases into the courts, although, again, in the 19th century, and this held actually all the way until until the late 60s, uh, you know, this was a system of fault divorce, mm-hmm. so you, one of the spouses basically had to prove that the other spouse had committed, I always say, committed a crime against the marriage, mm-hmm. be it adultery, desertion for a number of years, mm-hmm. 
et cetera. It varied from state to state what the mm-hmm. rules were. Mm-hmm. South Carolina was the only state that didn't allow divorce mm-hmm. at all. Mm-hmm. Um, but the numbers were relatively small, and this and and it and it really was a social. Um, in some ways, a form of, of social suicide to, mm-hmm. to get divorced, and this was something that that was really a, a last a last resort. Most Americans, what I found in my research was, they assumed they wanted to have a happy, loving, companion marriage, but the assumption was, uh, if you got in it and it wasn't happy, that it was your duty to stay in that mm-hmm. marriage. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you didn't necessarily you had ho- high hopes for marriage. It wasn't that expectations were less. It was just that there was. You know, somewhat, I've always been asked, well, what was marriage before it was work? And my answer after spending a lot of time trying to, to, to tease that out is that it was a duty. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and I think there is a difference there. Yeah. I wonder if, um, again, I think this is one of the few times in which I can say my training as an early modernist actually is going to be useful. Um, the, I wonder if we can explain some of this uh, uh, lack of divorce, I guess we might call it from our perspective, um, in, in a religious way, and, and that is that, uh, you know, if you look at the Jewish tradition, um, divorce, uh, while not a, a, an approved thing, is, uh, is, is, is condoned. Um, mm-hmm. the, the Rebbe says it's just fine and always has says it's fine to get divorced under certain conditions. Um, uh, but it, and, and then if you look at the kind of medieval Catholic tradition, there, there, were, there was a tradition of, of, of canonical divorce. But uh, I think the real break point actually comes with Protestantism and the kind of reading of the I've, New Testament very, very carefully because Jesus is unequivocal about divorce. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is a bad, bad thing. And if you get divorced, you can never be remarried again. Right. Uh, um, and, and I kind of think that, you know, it's, it's one of these moments where, you know, people, uh, P- Protestants and evangelicals took this really seriously. Yeah. Yeah. And that's and, you know, the major the major marriage advisors in in the 19th century were, in fact, there were some physicians who oftentimes were giving sort of, you know, covert birth control advice mm-hmm. and what have you. But the major advice givers, you know, of who wrote books, who wrote articles in in. Uh, you know the press and what have you were ministers. Yeah, those are difficult. And they, and they had a hard. And they always they, there was there were no ministers who were saying. Yeah, yeah. those are difficult. This, this is a good thing. Yeah, I was gonna say those are difficult passages for um, modern American Protestants to read, and they don't get read very much because again, right. it's 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 unequivocal. Je- right. Je- Jesus says no. <laughs> uh-uh. Right, and no that's go. and that's ultimately <laughs> I argue the problem becomes when in the early 20th century. The people start to have, uh, borrowing Elaine Tyler Mays for great expectations for their marriages yeah, and right. start to think maybe this isn't a great idea. And, and the, the ministerial community doesn't catch up to that. Yeah, no, they right, keep, right. they spend the early 20th century still debating, should we make divorce illegal? Yeah. Should uh-huh. we have a federal amendment to regulate it to make it harder to get? All these things. And people that, that it, it, they, there's a disconnect between what their ministers are saying and what their yeah. experience and those of their family members and their neighbors and all that, yeah. and it leaves the void in some ways. Yeah, it, it how do you of, make sense of it? It reminds me of the way that uh, you know, when I, I was raised a Lutheran, and and when we fudge passages in the Bible, uh, the pastor would talk about the uh, the miracle of continuing revelation. <laughs> so this is an instance of the miracle of continuing revelation. I kind of believe in the myth of continuing or the, in the miracle of continuing revelation personally. But uh, so let's go on. Let's go past the 1900 threshold. At, at that point, the um, divorce rate uh, starts to rise in a kind of secular trend, and it, it continues to do so through yes. most of the 20th century. Why, why does it begin to rise? 
That's a that's a really difficult question, um, and it, it is, and that's and that's one again that I, I control on Elaine Tyler May scholarship. That when she went and looked at court records, she did find that that you know in the 1880s that people were getting divorced uh, for very practical reasons. You know, your husband's left you. Now you want to remarry. You know you need to get divorce one in order to, mm-hmm. he's been gone a long time, what have you. They're, they're, you know, there tended to be very practical reasons. Mm-hmm. What we see when we start to look at divorce records in the 1920s is a suggestion that it's also because people think their marriages should make them happy and that they should be personally fulfilling uh, as well. And so, and so the expectation changed for that. And because people have higher hopes for marriage, they also then find more reasons to get divorced. Uh, and along those same lines, I, I say in the book, it gets much more difficult for there to be sort of a, a social stigma against divorce when more people are doing it. Yeah, exactly. Seeing people from afar as sinners is one thing, but it's really hard to condemn. You know, I think in the, by the early 1920s, the statistic was one in seven marriages mm-hmm. was ending in divorce. Mm-hmm. And so that really meant that probably someone, and of course it varies by region of the country and mm-hmm. what have you, but it probably meant you knew someone mm-hmm. who was getting divorced, and it made it more personal. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was entering pop culture as right. well. There's a, there's a lot of, it sort of all comes together at once. So it's hard to, to point to just one reason, but I think it, it's the confluence of those things that mm-hmm. lead to... Uh, on the one hand, a greater social acceptance of divorce and of the divorced mm-hmm. so that you can continue sort of operating in society. Um, it also leads to, to a huge sense of crisis mm-hmm. <laughs> because if marriage is a fundamental American institution, what does it mean that people are more and more willing to end those relationships? Mm-hmm. And what does that mean not just for themselves but for our national health and our national well-being as mm-hmm. well? Mm-hmm. Were, were there comparable increases in the divorce rate in comparable European countries at this time? Not, ah, this is, again, this is a hard one. It's not from what I could see, and that's where I think of my story as being, in some ways, a more American story, because America, the United States had much easier access to divorce. This time, for instance, in Great Britain, you still had to get an act of parliament yeah. mm-hmm. in order to get divorced, and, and in most Catholic countries, divorce was outright banned. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and so... Uh, in some ways, this is, becomes an American phenomenon largely because there's, ac- there's access to relatively easy divorce. And that's mm-hmm. the other thing I should say, which is interesting about this, is that the American courts really see a change as well, whereby before people took this idea of fault divorce relatively seriously. You know, you had to have witnesses who could say, I saw him sleeping with someone else, this wasn't a case of adultery, or he did dessert, or what have you. By the 20s, it starts to become a bit of a joke, mm-hmm. and it becomes more so through, through mid-century that people started to tailor their cases to fit the letter of the law as opposed to reflect their real situations mm-hmm. so that, mm-hmm. that, that they could get divorces. And, and the legal system is largely uh, complicit in this and willing to let people maybe not knowingly perjured themselves, but Mm -hmm. it was kind of an understanding on both sides that Mm -hmm. they knew what to say to be able to do that. And so divorce, if anything, becomes easier here. Mm -hmm. But we don't see that across the ocean necessarily Mm -hmm. so much. The laws remain in place. And so that's that's what makes this a little bit different a story. And this is what helps explain the fact that essentially since statistics have been kept, the first 
sort of international divorce statistics came out. There was a Department of Labor report in, 19, in 1889, and the United States had the highest divorce rate in the world huh. then. Yeah. And that continued through most of the 20th century. There were a few blips when the Soviets for a while yeah. – uh, played around with letting people have open access to divorce mm-hmm. and, and then their divorce rate went through the roof and then they decided that wasn't a good idea. Mm-hmm. So they shut that down. They shut down that plan. Yeah. Um, but for, for the most part, the United States has continued to have the highest divorce rate in the world. Of course, now some of that is, is we again, and the rates are always complicated and there's always reasons that the one in seven or the one in two, there's reasons why that's a little bit sketchy. Um, but largely because it counts all people who, anyone who gets divorced, but what's known is that once you've gotten divorced once, you're more likely to get divorced again. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So it's not one in seven new marriages Mm -hmm. end in divorce. It's just, you know, as I always say, Elizabeth Taylor counts no matter how many times (laughs) she got divorced. She's, she's, she's one in two all, you know, in and of herself. Uh And so, uh, so that's so that's that that's there as well. I would mm-hmm. say. I, I wonder though. Um, again, in our effort to explain the phenomenon of an increasing divorce rate, uh, how much what we might call the laboratory of democracy factors into it, and that is to say, it's my understanding um, from your book and other things I've read that divorce laws being made on the state level were quite different. And I, in fact, it's funny because I just watched um, the other night the movie The Misfits, which was a John Huston movie with Marilyn Monroe and, 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 and Montgomery Cliff. Uh, and um, I don't remember whom, uh, the guy who played Rhett Butler. In any event... Uh, Clark he, Gable. Yeah, Clark Gable. And, and it, the story opens with Marilyn Monroe going to get what they call in the movie a Reno divorce. Mm-hmm. She's come from back east to get a yeah. Reno divorce. Um, now, so, so to what extent can we say that, uh, that really the, the existence of these easy divorces in a few states then spread to other states, and it was almost as if the, the bottle was taken out of the cork, and, and there was pent-up demand for divorces in the late 19th century, and that these states that opened their divorce laws sort of discovered that. No, I think that's very much the case. And the, and the story of the, those are frequently, Reno becomes the most famous, but they're called divorce mills. Yeah. Uh, and the story of divorce mills is really fascinating because it, it actually spreads westward. Indiana is yeah. the first one. South Dakota is one for a while. I, there's probably, I think the reason we end up in, in Nevada is largely because it's, the weather's nicer. Yeah. Uh, it's more convenient from the West Coast uh-huh. than traveling to South Dakota to get your divorce. Um, but yeah, I, and those were, that was a real problem. And I don't think it necessarily had to do with the business, but that was a real problem because they seemed to be, uh, corrupting the law even more so than other states. Mm-hmm. In fact, uh, and I think they were, I think they were very smart. I think they realized that there was a demand. They mm-hmm. knew that, that, co- that states that were sort of more entrenched, that had a, had a more sort of, you know, traditional Christian heritage or what have mm-hmm. you. I mean, in New York State, for instance, you could only get a divorce uh, for adultery. That was the only grounds for divorce until the mid-60s. Mm-hmm. And that, when they decide to change it, that it ends up being televised on TV throughout, it, throughout the state. That's a big deal when they finally agree to change it, and that's because the Catholic Church was really opposed to mm-hmm. any... Any, making the law any more lax. Mm-hmm. Uh, so places like Reno really posed a problem because 
they allowed people to go, and you always had to say to the judge that you now intended to make Reno your home. Mm-hmm. And then you could, and then you just want, you know, people, and again, you had to have money to be mm-hmm. able to go and live in Reno for six weeks, mm-hmm. or if, usually the wife would do it because the mm-hmm. husband would continue working and whatever his job was, and it would be, that's why the, Claire Booth loses the women is all about women who, you know, a group of women who end up in Reno together. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are real concerns about that. That's uh, I write about in the book the the famous marriages and divorces of uh, Mary Pickford and Douglas yeah. Fairbanks. Mm-hmm. And they uh, she goes to Reno to get a divorce. Claims she's going to stay because they both were married to other people and wanted to then get mm-hmm. divorced and marry marry each other. Mm-hmm. Uh, two of the most famous screen stars of their day. Mm-hmm. And she goes and, and tells the judge, "Yes, I'm going to make this my home." And is on a plane back to California before the day is over. Mm-hmm. And they end up launching. It makes the national news. There ends up being a huge, the attorney general of Nevada says he's going to launch an investigation, and there's fits and starts, and it ends up not really going anywhere. And mm-hmm. she thought it might ruin her career, and she was shocked to find that the American public embraced her. Mm-hmm. And I see that as a moment, really, again, where we see evidence that pop culture, you know, that, public views on divorce were in fact changing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I, I, I think there are lots of instances in which um, sort of the sweep of social phenomena in 20th century America in certain directions, certain secular trends, is actually the result of this laboratory of democracy effect. Because, mm-hmm. you know, like I'm just thinking of my own boyhood when I was, when I was growing up in Kansas, of all places, they, they could, you, could buy, you could buy alcohol in Oklahoma on Sundays, but not in Kansas. Right. So Oklahoma sold a lot of alcohol on Sundays. That's how it was, yeah, that's how it was in Maryland. Yeah. You had to drive, in Delaware, you couldn't buy alcohol on Sundays because yeah. you could go to Maryland. And you always knew, there were always apparently police and yeah. cars that patrolled the border looking for... Yeah, that's exactly right. ...the University so, of Delaware kids who were coming back over right. moonshine yeah. runs. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's, I, I guess I have kind of mixed feelings about the whole thing, but because it does kind of get the ball rolling, and then there's a kind of demonstration effect where states are trying to compete with one another um, mm-hmm. in order to get whatever dollars are gained by liquor sales or marriage license or divorce marriage license, license or, yeah. or medical marijuana or whatever it is, you know, and, and, then, and then it becomes kind of a race to the... I, I don't know if it's the bottom or the top. I don't know what metaphor to use, but um, right. there's a race somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I hear you. And that's what's fascinating that once Reno, Reno sort of gets the divorce thing and, and holds tight to it. Uh-huh. And probably, I suspect, I've not actually read anything about this, and it would be interesting. I suspect they were really devastated when California passed its no-fault law yeah, in 69, yeah. because, because that was the end of an era for them. They yeah. no longer were needed in yeah. a way that, that they had been previously. Uh-huh. Yeah, I see. So then this, um, the increase in the, um, so, so this is a, a case in which, uh, in terms of the, um, in terms of the marriage counseling industry in which um, supply follows demand, which is to say the increase in divorce rate occurs and then practitioners appear trying to explain to people how they can keep their, divorce, their, their um, marriages together. Is that right? That's what I found very much so. Uh, and I see the, the rise of the marriage counseling profession. The first marriage counseling clinics in this, in this country uh, were founded in – we don't have – Documents are hard to come by on this topic. That was actually when I discovered no one had written about marriage counseling. What mm-hmm. I learned was the reason was because documents were extraordinarily hard to come by. Uh, largely the first professional association of marriage counselors, the American Association of Marriage Counselors, which is now the American Association of Marriage and Family Therapists, mm-hmm. um, was founded in 1942. 
uh, and all of their records very sadly burned in a fire oh, in no. 1984. Oh, that is terrible. And, and so we do not have. It's really terrible, isn't it? Oh, I was so I was so crushed the day that I, I got in touch with with their offices and, and mm. found that out, and it explained why my all my brash graduate student pr- thing you know mm. proclamations about how could someone not have studied this it made a little bit more sense mm. after the fact. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the first marriage counseling clinics were founded in, in 1929, 1930, and, and I and I and I see that particular time period, and I, and I do think it it's it is a supply and demand thing, like you're saying. I think mm-hmm. that there's there's more divorces going on. I don't necessarily know if it's the American public who are who are seeking answers. I think it, it's a combination of both. But I think there's this group, as I said, the religious. The, there's Ministers keep talking about whether or not we should make divorce illegal. That conversation, mm-hmm. Americans aren't interested anymore. Mm-hmm. They, they kind of figure this is here to stay. Mm-hmm. So then the question becomes, how can we make it so that only people who really, you know, some way we want to say, quote, unquote, need divorce, only the relationships that really are horrible mm-hmm. get divorced. But other people, you know, how can I make my marriage better? How can I improve it? Mm-hmm. At the same time, there's this group of experts who are very upset about what's going on. They think that Americans do not have enough respect for marriage, mm-hmm. that they don't know that there are ways in which, you know, maybe they need to lower their expectations a little and figure out that just being with this person is enough, and then there's so much happiness that can come, and also, you know, all these other great benefits like national stability and raising healthy children and, and all those sorts of things. And so the marriage counseling clinics, those are start, those are founded in the first one in, we think, 1929, the second one in 1930. Uh, and those happen at the same time where we see the launching of marriage education courses in uh, America's universities, which are also meant to teach, they're very practical courses meant to teach people how to pick a good mate and what to hap- what's going to happen after marriage and ways to prevent divorce. We see a lot of research studies that come come out, particularly in the 30s, that also study, you know, what how can we predict future success or failure in mm-hmm. marriage? Mm-hmm. And they're very and, and there have been some historians who have made sort of light of these sort of you know when you see formulas, mm-hmm. you know, mathematical formulas that if you plug in the different numbers, it's supposed to tell you whether or not your marriage is going to be successful or not. Like mm-hmm. it seems. It seems a little ridiculous, mm-hmm. but I find there's a real earnestness in these studies and a real hope that there, there's, and I think this is something that, that would be very familiar to, to listeners in the 21st century, that there's got to be some way to figure it out. There's mm-hmm. got to be some, there's got to be some secret way, you know, mm-hmm. there's got to be a secret that if we could only just figure it out, then people would choose the right partners and people would choose and then once they chose them, they would they would be happy and sure there would maybe be times that were harder than others. That's what life is about, but that mm-hmm. there's ways to improve that. And, and I really see the beginnings of that conversation in this sort of foment in the 20s and 30s of mm-hmm. education and counseling and, and all of those sorts of things. So you mentioned actually that this is um, – uh, it's just <laughs> – that actually the rubber met the road here and that uh, uh, big and traditional institutions kind of got in the game of marriage counseling. One thing that I was fascinated to read in the book is that colleges started mm-hmm. to offer marriage counseling. Maybe you could talk a little about that. Yeah, that's um, – and I think that, again, has to do with the fact that a lot of the a lot of the early marriage counselors were – Academics as well. Yeah, I should say I, we, we don't offer any marriage counseling here at the University of Iowa. Do you do it uh, at Queens? 
Not that, not that I know of. In yeah, fact. We're, we're out of that game now. But anyway, go ahead. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know exactly. And we, I don't think we offer any like practical marriage classes yeah, the way that they we were do doing either, no. back then either. I think the marriage and the family class. Actually, although I will say those marriage and family classes, what happened to them was they've moved to the high school level. Oh, they. Okay. And that's I don't know. In my Catholic high school, we had a required semester of marriage and the family, mm-hmm. which was about practical. You know. Well, a lot of times it was about don't use birth control, but yeah. <laughs> other times, well, actually, it was like, well, you're you're not supposed to, but if you found you're in a situation, you have to. They kind of yeah. snuck around the, right. the question, but that was that that was initially started in colleges, and what happened was mm-hmm. in the '50s when people started getting married so young, they weren't making it to college before they got married. Mm-hmm. You know, the average age of marriage for women in the 50s is 20 years old. And so they had to move it into the high schools if right. they wanted people to get that sort of practical advice. Mm-hmm. So colleges, what happened in universities, what happens is that a lot of the initial, the early marriage counseling pioneers, although certainly not all of them, uh, the most famous one of all, Paul Popino, who we can maybe talk about a little, he's mm-hmm. a fascinating character, mm-hmm. he... Um, he was not academically affiliated, but a lot of them are, and I think they see the classroom as, and their students, uh, as a sort of experimental place, a way to, you know, they, they have a ready un, and eager audience. And that's something that I think is important to remember for this. This is not just, I don't see my story at all as being one about experts forcing a point of view. Mm-hmm. I think there's a real, there's a real demand. Mm-hmm. As well, I think it's 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 a complementary story here that the experts say they have, they're selling something, they're selling how to have a better, happier marriage or relationship, mm-hmm. and Americans want to find out how to have those things, and so so they complement one another. Mm-hmm. But on college campuses, that was what we see is a lot of professors who both would teach classes and be scholars and do research and family, but then also see themselves as practitioners too. Mm-hmm. And that they really wanted to, and they saw, you know, there's a bit of elitism here. A lot of counselors, you know, they were invested primarily in helping white upper and middle class marriages become stronger. Mm-hmm. And I think they saw their students as, as, you know, the vanguard of perhaps people who would make a new, healthier, more stable American marriage. Mm-hmm. How, how was it the case that um, people came to accept this sort of therapeutic practice as legitimate within a kind of broader religious context? Because, you know, where I I grew up, it was uh, still the case that if your marriage was on the rocks, the first place you went was to talk to Pastor Linquist or whoever the heck it was. Right. Um, We we didn't immediately go to the the, the marriage counselors, although they were available. So how, how was that finessed? That well, and that's and that's something that I, I will say that I should probably do a little bit more of in the book. To be honest with you, the initial the initial rise of marriage counseling, like I said, in the twenties and thirties, was a very much was a secular phenomenon. Uh, these it was not occurring necessarily within religious institutions, but but after World War II, uh, a lot of uh, we and, and 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 I'm actually overstating that. They're 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 very early on. We see rabbis and ministers starting to get interested in the, this form of advice giving, mm-hmm. uh, and we do see a much stronger commitment to pastoral counseling and other sorts of religious and establishing those sorts of programs within seminaries, for instance, uh, and other religious training programs after World War II, because in some ways this is a way. They've seen that marriage counselors have a service that people want, and they see it as a way of keeping uh, young married couples involved in their churches and synagogues and what have you. Mm-hmm. That they, this is a service they could potentially offer. Now, what's interesting is when you look in the earlier part of the 20th century, a lot of the experts and 
um, more generally in marriage counselors in particular, saying you shouldn't go. Don't go to your mom. Don't go to your neighbor. Don't go to, you know, your untrained minister to ask for marriage advice. Mm-hmm. Come to us. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of religious organizations see that and say, well, in fact, this is something we do have to offer. Mm -hmm. And so there's a parallel uh, that does develop whereby there are people who who prefer to go to more secular marriage counselors and then also um, that a lot more religious organizations do Mm -hmm. choose to start offering these sorts of services as well. And I would argue that's particularly exploded... uh, with the rise of evangelical Christianity in the past four decades or so, that the church has really reclaimed a lot of this Mm -hmm. marriage stuff that they kind of let slip out of their fingers Mm -hmm. uh, earlier in the 20th century. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I think that's consistent with my my experience as well. And I I think it's a, I don't know, I'm just guessing here, but I would imagine a a standard part of one's... um, pastoral or priestly training is now a certain amount of study of marriage counseling. I, yeah. I, don't, I don't think they just let them off into the parish or yeah. wherever. No, and, and that's one of the most difficult things about studying marriage counseling as well, is that it's not... Most places you go, you don't go to... Uh, there aren't a lot of, like, I'm getting a BA or a PhD or an MA in marriage counseling. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that was a debate that happened very early on in the profession we see with the formation, for instance, of the American Association of Marriage Counselors. Mm-hmm. People say, you know, there's a whole internal debate. Are we going to become a separate profession or are we going to become something that people who are other professions do? Mm-hmm. And that list includes lawyers, doctors, mm-hmm. ministers, sociologists, psychologists. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's kind of, it, it ends up being more of the latter. Mm-hmm that marriage counseling is something that you can solely practice, mm-hmm. but that also you can, that can be practiced by these other people. And that's why when I said the American Association of Marriage Counselors now has changed its name to the American Association of Marriage and Family Therapists, mm-hmm. that's in some ways an attempt to, to separate themselves from those sort of people who do marriage, you know, it's not their primary job. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, so there yeah. are people who are specifically marriage and family therapists, but there are also people who engage in marriage counseling, mm-hmm. but that's not the only thing that they do. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, but I mean, I think they've been remarkably successful in uh, creating a uh, a brand for themselves because pretty much everybody I've ever known, I'm quite a bit older than you are, who has had uh, marital difficulties of one sort or another, the very first and reflexive thought is let's go to marriage counseling. Yeah, exactly. So I, I, I have a friend who who tells a story of some friends of hers who uh, they were decided they were getting divorced and they had to go tell their nine-year-old daughter, I think, you know, this is what's going on. And she mm-hmm. looked at them incredulously and said, but have you gone to marriage yeah, counseling? Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Which is not the sort of anecdote yeah. you can put in your book, but I think it, yeah, it's, right. it's telling of something that the assumption is now and that's what I think the marriage counselors, those the ones who founded those early clinics, I think would be thrilled. Yeah. They wouldn't be thrilled with our current divorce rate, but they would be thrilled that the idea that you can work harder on your marriage by pursuing counseling, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, that yeah. that's an expected step before you go to divorce. Now, some of them would argue back in the day or even today that the problem often becomes that they use counseling as a last resort mm-hmm. when the marriage is perhaps already irreparably broken as opposed to seeing it as a resource that you can use sort of throughout a marriage, mm-hmm. that, it, that it's not, you don't have to be in dire straits before you go to visit a marriage counselor, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but that it's something that, you know, 
for other problems or just to sort of get yourself to see, make sure you're on the same page, that that's there as well. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I see what you mean. So that's actually a good segue into um, what I'm sure all of our listeners are waiting to hear, and that is what, what sort of advice did they give, uh, and how does it change over time from, let's say, the 30s at the beginning of marriage counseling to the 1960s or 70s? What, what did they say to people, uh, and, and to whom did they speak? Because you note in the book that there's a difference between yeah. the way they talk to men and the way they talk to Women, or I guess right. I should say they don't talk to men and they do They talk don't to talk to men. Yeah. That's the thing. That was one of, I will say, the most surprising things about my research was when I, when I started to look. And, you know, a lot of my research is I, I, I was able to find a few, a very few number of records of actual marriage counselors in session. That's something that's very hard for anyone who studies psychology or studies counseling of any sort, that there's a lot of privacy issues, that a lot of people don't keep their records. These sorts of things. And so a lot of the advice I'm looking at is filtered through the advice they give in magazines, mm -hmm. like the Ladies Home Journal and McCall's mm -hmm. and what have you. Um, the, the thing that I found most surprising was the fact that, they re that there was no such thing as couples counseling mm -hmm. until the 1970s, really. Um, and the assumption was that if a, both a husband and wife were in counseling, that they would see the counselor individually. Uh, but a lot of a lot of counselors said they, they were just fine seeing the wife, mm -hmm. and that just if one person was willing to make a change within the marriage, that that was sufficient, that that would be enough, that both partners didn't necessarily have to be invested in the process. Mm -hmm. Now that changes in the 1970s, and that comes out of you know a whole milieu of the feminist movement, and that comes out of the social movements of the 60s, and more of an idea that sharing and communication are important as well. Mm -hmm. I found a fascinating study where in the early 60s, communication was like number eight of, of ten of a list of things that partners deemed to be, spouses deemed to be the most important thing about their marriage. Mm -hmm. By the early 70s, communication is number one. Mm -hmm. And it's hard to communicate with your spouse if you're going to individual counseling sessions. And so mm -hmm. that's when we frequent, that's when we see the rise of couple counseling. The, the, the content of, of advice is really fascinating as well. I, I argue in the book, and this is true, and some of it has to do with sources, that, that the vast majority of this of advice since the, the early 20th century and even through today is largely directed at women, mm -hmm. at wives. And there's, and there's a number of reasons for this, part of it being that they're a more ready audience, part of it being that the assumption through most of the 20th century was that they were staying home and they just, that being invested in their marriage was their job, not unlike how being, you know, being a breadwinner was their husband's job. Mm -hmm. um, and, but the advice, the, the sort of bar for what makes a marriage successful, experts really do change over time. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think that becomes most evident in the 1950s when you read the, vi the advice and when, I, when people read some of the stuff that I have and when I talk about it, they're shocked. But, you know, some of the best advice in the 1950s was, you know, the most important thing is to stay married. Mm -hmm. And that as long as you stay married, it's successful. People set the bar very high for marriage in the 50s, but as long as you stayed married, your marriage can be deemed a success. And mm -hmm. so if your husband's an alcoholic, mm -hmm. how have you driven it to? How have you driven him to do it? Mm -hmm. If your husband is abusive, mm -hmm. what are the things that you've done to make him abusive to mm -hmm. the wise? And the advice is then, you know, a list of things you can do so that he won't hit you, for mm -hmm. instance. Mm -hmm. uh, and the bar, the the bar for what makes a marriage success, successful is very low, and the advice is, is directed towards women and very much telling them that it's 
that it's their responsibility to mm-hmm. be able to be able to take care of it. One of the things I do find most fascinating is that the, the is the flexibility of advice over time. And so in the 50s, you know, the best advice would have been that women shouldn't be working, particularly if they had small children. Mm-hmm. But that's no longer a reality, largely for structural reasons by the late 70s and 80s. It changes. It's okay. We accept you're in the workforce, but here are the new challenges. Here are the new things you may have to work on. The big, mm-hmm. the big fear in the 80s and 90s is that women are going to the workforce, and now they're going to start having affairs. Mm-hmm. There are more books published about infidelity. Really? That's interesting. Yeah, there are more books published about infidelity as well as as well as sexual sort of just issues, and you know, books like Keep the Home Fires Burning mm-hmm. and all this sort of stuff about. They, you know, experts acknowledge this is the new reality, but that doesn't mean that the, that working on your marriage should fall to the wayside. We just have to find new ways to work at it. I'll never forget the day. A lot of the books, once I was doing my research for the later chapters in, in the 80s and 90s, you'd go to the public library to get all the book, you know, all these marriage advice books out. And I just remember one time walking, I was living in Michigan at the time, walking up to this thing with this <laughs> high school kid who was working at the public library with this stack of like 10 books that all had titles like Supermarital Sex mm-hmm, and yeah. Keep the Home Fires Burning. And he gave me this look and I wanted to be like, I'm a historian. Yeah. It's research, I promise. Yeah, right. <laughs> you know? Uh-huh. Yeah, but that's, that's where you find, I mean, and that speaks, to, it's interesting that a lot of these books to, aren't ones that you find in university libraries, but they're readily yeah. available at, at any public library. Library, you know. Right, right. Well, if you go and you uh, look, look at Barnes and Nobles or a public library right now for uh, marriage uh, books about how to save or improve your marriage, you, you don't um, find that sort of advice that you found in the 50s. And I, I would suspect, right. and actually, I know uh, because I've read your book, uh, feminism has something to do with it. Maybe you could talk a little about uh, how feminism changed and the entry of women into the workforce, which is just as important, how it changed marital advice. Yeah, very much so. And I would say some ways it changed it, and yet it didn't change it. Uh, one thing I found that was very interesting is that, you know, by, by, the end of, by the early 1960s, pretty much the idea that marriage required work had become, you know, we say today it's one of, I say it's one of the most reflexive things we say in the 21st century, mm-hmm. that you pair marriage and work almost unthinkingly. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's and my book is about trying to find out why we do that, mm-hmm. you know. And what happened it, with the feminist movement was that they started to a be a lot more uh, feminists when they started to get together in, in consciousness raising groups and, and other sorts of organizations. They started to say, why is it okay? A, who are these experts? Who made them experts in the first place? Mm-hmm. B, why are they only talking to us? Mm-hmm. To the women and the wives, and and see why is it that we're the only ones who are required to work on our marriages? Mm-hmm. Why is that the content of the advice? Mm-hmm. And so they spend a lot of time in the early seventies, in particular, really ha- trying to hash out a way in which to, to call for men to be involved. Now, I will say it was unfair of the experts from the beginning, and I have a lot of evidence from the fifties, for instance, of husbands writing marriage counselors or writing the ladies' home journal looking for advice. Mm-hmm. So just because that was, you know, just because the, mar- the, the, the marriage counselors assumed that wives were their audience doesn't mean that husbands were not invested in their marriages. Mm-hmm. But that's, that's who the advice was for, was, for, was largely directed at women. And, and feminists start to say this isn't fair, and maybe we can find a way in which, we, in which the work of marriage is done by both partners. Mm-hmm. And some of that work they're talking about, of course, is, very, is health work and child care. 
Mm-hmm. And some of it is the emotional work. They they want their husbands to be just as involved. And one of the things I think is most interesting about that is the fact that they spend so much time debating. These is particularly white white feminists. African American feminists have have a bit of a a beef with the fact they're spending so much time talking about marriage and housework mm-hmm. when they think there's other issues, bigger issues to deal with. But that they they spend a lot of time in it, and it and it really puts to rest the myth, and I think historians have been doing this for a long time, that feminists were uninterested in family and marriage and what have you, or that, Mm -hmm. you know, the feminists who were saying marriage is slavery, and there are some Mm -hmm. who very much are saying Mm -hmm. this is, we should kill the institution, Mm -hmm. that's, that's that's, you know, a more radical part of the movement. But then there's a lot of who I call liberal feminists who, who want to figure out ways in which they still want happy, successful marriages. They just want them to be configured in a way in which both spouses are, are equally involved with that. Mm-hmm. And I and I think it's a testament in some ways to their success that there's a very there is a backlash against that in the 70s, uh, again, rising out of evangelical Christianity. Uh, Maribel Morgan, whose book The Total Woman is the best-selling nonfiction book of 1973, mm-hmm. her, her, it's, it's an entire book calling for women to be the ones to reinvent themselves and to make their marriages work mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and to accept that role. And then that's truly what women, that's, that is her, her God-ordained role, mm-hmm. is to, to make sure that she has a, a happy marriage and that her husband is mm-hmm. happy and that he's successful and, and all of those things. And so we have, um, I think that's a testament to the, what the, femini- the fact that feminists are very much calling for this redistribution of marital work is, mm-hmm. is what I would say, mm-hmm. that there's this reaction to that. And, and I think that really those debates, you know, rage on. And in the 80s and 90s, we do see more books that address husbands as well as wives. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, on the other hand, you know, things like men are from Mars, women are from Venus, when you actually spend time, a lot of time reading the text, mm-hmm. there's a lot more advice to women than to men. I was going to say, I've not read the book, but one thing I did, actually I was in, in D.C., and oddly enough, uh, on, uh, I forget what I was doing there, I was on a postdoc or something, it was in the 90s, and uh, I happened to be there during the... Uh, convention of the promise keepers mm-hmm. on the national mall and uh that that the, i have to admit that the thing that i really remember from it was the next day and the number of porta potties but which was <laughs> truly astounding yeah. but also it was it was kind of interesting seeing a kind of christian evangelical group come together to to talk about men's commitment to their families so yeah so and, and one of their promises is very much is about that and it almost i would argue is that uh, they're saying, well, the women have tried and haven't done a good job. Because yeah. look at the divorce rate. Yeah, right. Maybe yeah. we need to take this. We need to take this over because mm-hmm. they ha- they've they've we've given them the 20th century. Maybe for the 21st, men need to be the ones who are going to stop the stop the the deluge of divorce. Yeah. Well, this may sound like special pleading, but you know, one of the things that did occur to me while I was reading your book, especially the latter chapters, is the is the extent to which. Um, you know, men, men, women are obviously in a tough spot, but I think something that doesn't get as much attention is the fact that men of my generation um, uh, are in a kind of tough spot because the, what is deemed the appropriate behavior now in marriage was never modeled for us. I, my father yeah. certainly, uh, when he left my family, when I was, you know, in grade school, uh, you know, to go pursue the U Hefner lifestyle, um, that was the model I had. And um, it, it did not do me any good when my, you know, when, when, when I was, my wife and I agreed that we were going to be, you know, co-equal partners and co-equal parents. I didn't, right. know, I didn't know what to do. 
<laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, I, I, what does that mean exactly? I don't know what that means. And, and so I think that, you know, it changed so quickly, you know, yeah. over the course of a generation that there's a whole bunch of us who are, you know, we, we've, we try the best we can, but it just isn't in, we don't have the instincts. And well, and what's fascinating about it is you would think that there would have been, because my story is all about experts both molding these things and then reacting to them. Mm-hmm. So it's almost a little surprising there hasn't been more of an explosion of advice literature, yeah. you know, directed at, you know, at husbands, at men who are, who are looking to do these things. We do for the very first time, and I looked at men's magazines throughout the 20th century, mm-hmm. trying to find the similar advice to what you find in women's magazines. Well, men's magazines and, are all about getting laid. I mean, exactly. <laughs> well, and, and, and what's interesting is the very early issues of Playboy actually do spend a fair amount of time. I was sitting, reading Playboy in microfilm, by the way. It's yeah. one of the weirdest yeah. experiences you will ever have. So I'm in the University of Virginia library looking at Playboy on uh, microfilm. Yeah. They had the whole run. It was a boys' yeah, college in the yeah, 50s. Right. And they made a lot of fun of, the, of these women's magazines. Yeah. I found some great satirical articles, but in the late 90s, it's the very first time I found it. it was the late 90s. Men's Health does start to occasionally publish marriage advice and divorce advice and post-divorce advice and all those sorts of things. And it's really late in the game in some ways. I was really surprised. I was, I kept thinking, there's got to be, where are they, you know? Where are the men? Well, I think that, yeah. I mean, I, I believe that there was a lot of very hypocritical marketing on, the, on, the, uh, on, on what is really, and this is just my own personal feeling, there was a lot of hypocritical marketing um, uh, uh, among the nascent pornography industry in the 1960s and 70s. Because I remember when I was growing up in the 60s, um, you know, I was a little kid then, but uh, before my dad left um, uh, and my parents got a Reno divorce, the, uh, um, we used to have Playboy on the coffee table. Mm-hmm. And I just, I look yeah. back on it, I'm just like, that, that's just from another world. You would yeah. never walk into a bourgeois home today and see, see Playboy on the couch. No, no, you, you just frat house, maybe. I yeah. remember my brother's frat house had like but a like, whole, you like, know. You know, there it is, National Geographic Time Magazine, Playboy. Playboy. Just like that. You know, and I'm just like, uh, I, it's just like another world. <laughs> and, and, but, you know, and that's what I was, was mo- you know, that, that was the example that I had to follow. And so I was yeah. like, well, obviously confused about what I should do once I got married and had kids. I was like, God, what, what in the world? What do I do? And there are no, you know, for those, I don't know, for those enterprising nonfiction authors out there, the, I think that uh, uh, Kristen has just made a good suggestion about a book topic. So contact yeah. your agent. Um, exactly. That, that, <laughs> I'd, I'd buy that and read it, I tell you what. So let me, um, let me ask you a, a kind of a, a more evaluative and speculative question. Um, because I, I'm just interested to, to partake of your wisdom since you've studied this. Well, what should we think about the, the continuing existence of a reasonably high divorce rate? Is it, is it a good thing in some? Is it a bad thing in some? Is there anything that can be done about it? Uh, should we worry about it? Or Yeah, you know, that, this is something that I've, I, struck, I, you know, I struggled with throughout the project. Um, and some of that is because I'm, I always am kind of afraid that people are going to think, you know, you see making marriage work, and I'm like, ooh, it'll be really good for sales if people think it's an advice book. Uh, right. <laughs> but they're not going to find that when they no, read it. No, they're no, not going to no, find no, it no. when they do. No. Uh, and I think the divorce rate is really is really perplexing uh, for that. Um, and you know, and I and and I'm not and I'm not sure what can be done about it. I think that I think it's here. I think it's it's a reality. Uh, it did, in fact, it has stabilized over the past 25 years. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I would argue that the real spike in the 70s that generated a lot of concern had, was, was in part because there was sort of all this experimentation. In part, it was because the parents of the baby boom 
uh, you know, their kids were getting older and they were like, you know, there was a backlog. The divorce rate had slowed in the 50s, but they started, they were just as important, involved in getting divorced in the, in the 70s as mm-hmm. were their children or what have you. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it has, it's, so it has stabilized. Um, the thing that I think is that, I, and the reason why I think that any sort of conversation about how do we lower the divorce rate that I worry about is the fact that I, and I, and I think, if there's any message I want people to get out of my book, it's that there is such a thing as working too hard on your marriage. That's mm-hmm. my opinion. Mm-hmm. That there's a certain point where, you know, when it when it becomes abusive, for instance, mm-hmm. or yeah. that those things in the 50s when you read about them, it just, you know, it makes me relieved that that's not what we have today. And it makes me worried, for instance, when you read uh, literature about marriage promotion mm-hmm. uh, amongst uh, poor women as a way mm-hmm. of helping women get off welfare. A lot of that advice is to women: you should be the one. You know, he's going to be a dog. He's going to stray, but you just stick with him, and things will get better. Mm-hmm. I don't, and I'm not really sure that's what we want marriage to be about. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. At least that's not what I I would want. Yeah, no, I I, I I agree with you, but you know, and again, but but on the other hand, you know, I this metaphor of work, uh, which which you nicely show, is the product of this nascent industry of the 1930s that's continued to today, it's, it's really, to my mind, and there's a kind of chicken and egg question here, it's completely apt because I know that, you know, sometimes I'm getting ready to go home from the office, which is a great sanctuary, and I'm yeah. thinking, now I have to go to work. Now for the right. next three hours, I'm going to be involved in marriage and family stuff, and it's going to yeah. be engrossing and tiring, and I'm... I'm not really a hundred percent pleased about it, uh, but you know I go I do it and I you know and I think one thing that you said that that, that I think is a consistent thing in all of the, um, the the marriage advice from the 30s to the beginning is is this scaling back of expectations, and, yeah. and I think that's valuable I, I really really do and, yeah because uh, we we have you know. I don't, that's another story about why we have this romantic image in our head. Um, but, but, yeah, no, and I think, it's a, I think largely it is about – the one thing I agree with the expert is that self-awareness is important. You know, and going into a relationship, what do you want, and having those conversations, mm-hmm. I think, you know, and being open and honest about what our ideals and what have you are about marriage or, mm-hmm. or relationships in general. I, I should probably admit I'm the historian of marriage in a long-term relationship who's chosen not to get married. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, you know, there, you know, I mean, it's just it is one of these things that, you know, it's um, it, 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 it's marriage is very interesting because it, it's it's one of the greatest examples of something that uh, turns out to be very different in reality than it did in prospect. Right. You know, when you're about to get married and you've known, you know, you love and everything like that, and as you will be when you're married, hopefully, but it just looks very different um, Then once you're into it for a while. It, it, it takes on a very different and unexpected aspect, and that's I think you know for a lot of people that, that that's a kind of a shock, um, right. especially for people who get married young that they that, that there's a kind of jarring moment, and we used to call it the seven year itch and things like that, but right. uh, you know it's it's more serious than that. It really is, and it's endemic to the the process of of living with somebody for a very long time, and 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 having to you know and having to uh, having to negotiate them as a personality and give them the space to, you know, I sound like a, I sound like a 70s uh, marriage counselor, they give them the space <laughs> to, um, to, you know, be themselves and, and do all these other things and pursue, you know, all, all of the, right. all the things that we think people should pursue. It's a, it's, it's a real, um, it's, no, it, it is really hard. And that's I thought I've read, you know, Stephanie Kuntz is a, is a, is a very well-known scholar of marriage. And, and she makes an interesting point that, you know, maybe it's also because we need to also look at, community and not look at our marriages again as the sole source of mm-hmm. support and happiness and what have you but that 
there are ways in which if we, you know, open ourselves up a little bit more and, and think more communally, that that could also, not in the open marriage sense of things in the 70s, but in the support networks and what have you, that that can be helpful as well. Do, um, do religious people, I don't know how measured, let's just put it in, in a very open way, do religious people get uh, divorced less than non-religious people? No. Yeah. Kind of you no, know, they get. I mean, it's it's the same. I mean, the, yeah. the, the, I always one of my favorite little gotcha things is the state today with the the less the least divorce is in huh. fact Massachusetts, the yeah. liberal bastion yeah. of Massachusetts. Yeah. Now that's of course because of its Catholic heritage, but yeah. some of the states with the highest divorce rates are in the Deep South or in yeah. are in the Bible Belt, and so there's a bit of a there's a bit of a disconnect yeah. there. Very, you know. very perplexing, isn't it? It's a really interesting thing to think about. It's really, yeah. it's it's a really, it's a really, it's a really interesting thing to think about. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I, I want to say that we've taken up a lot of your time, and 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 Kristen, I, I really, really appreciate it. And now I'm going to ask you our traditional final question on new books in history, and that is, what is your next project? Yes. Well, well, this is one that actually you you can see where where my next project rose from my current one, and that I'm actually starting to embark on a project that's a history of single parenting. Mm-hmm. In the United States, and that grew out of some some work I had done that was in the initial dissertation and didn't really make it into the book about uh, debates about the effects of divorce mm-hmm. on children mm-hmm. that I was shocked, again, to learn really took off in the early part of the 20th century. I thought it was something that, that was completely a 70s thing, you mm-hmm. know? Mm-hmm. Kramer versus Kramer mm-hmm. and right. all those all those sorts of things. And in fact, in, in researching for this book, I found this whole this mm-hmm. whole other side. And, and as I thought about the projects more, some, I discovered, for instance, that Parents Without Partners, uh, the which is a divorce support organization, was founded in the 50s, mm-hmm. which I think people would be surprised to learn because we don't mm-hmm. think of people divorce support in the 50s no, and what have you. And no, no. and so that's the so so that's my next project, and I'm Great. I'm just starting to 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 launch into it and mm-hmm. get excited about it but mm-hmm. but well it's, when it's, it's when it's when it's done you know you, it's you actually, keep I'm us thinking in mind. about it about yeah. what happens when making a first book is what making marriage work and the second yeah. book is when that marriage didn't work dot 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 yeah well here's uh, what happened after the fact well uh, Christine Salolo you know thank you very much um, for yes. being on the show today we've been talking to Christine Salolo about uh, her new book making marriage work a history of marriage and divorce in the 20 in 20th century uh, United States just come out from the University of North Carolina Press. Christine, thanks very much for being on the show. Thank you so much, Marshall. Okay, bye-bye. You've been listening to an interview with Kristen Salello about her new book, Making Marriage Work, A History of Marriage and Divorce in the 20th Century United States. I'm Marshall Poe, the host of New Books in History. Have a great week. Music.